The larger the budgets and deficits seem to grow, the more elusive auditable financial statements of the federal finances seem to get. The Government Accountability Office says the Treasury Department has made good progress on some deficiencies, but new ones have popped up. We get the latest from GAO's Director of Financial Management and Assurance Issues, Don Simpson. Don, good to have you back. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. And this gets back to a perennial issue for GAO, which is trying to audit the consolidated statements of the federal government. And in general, it's fair to say GAO is never able to render a judgment because of these deficiencies. Just remind us on the background here. We've been auditing the U.S. government's consolidated financial statements since fiscal year 1997, and we have not been able to provide an opinion on the consolidated financial statements related to the accrual-based financial statements. And in part, that's due to material weaknesses and internal control, three of which of those material weaknesses do relate to the processes that the Department of the Treasury, in coordination with the Office of Management and Budget, used to prepare the consolidated financial statements. And which part of Treasury actually does this? Is it the Bureau of the Fiscal Service? Yes, primarily the Bureau of the Fiscal Service, with also some pieces of the Office of Fiscal Assistant Secretary, and then in coordination with the Office of Management and Budget. And in layman's terms, that is non-CPA terms, what are these deficiencies and how do they relate to the ability to say, yes, this is right or not right when it comes to the rolling up the whole statement? So as I mentioned, there are three material weaknesses in internal control related to these processes that are used to prepare the statements. One of the material weaknesses deals with the transactions that occur between federal entities. And in the federal government, there are many, many transactions that occur between federal entities. And the problem is those transactions per federal accounting standards needs to eliminate in order to prepare the consolidated financial statements. And that is not effectively happening. There's a significant amount of those intergovernmental transactions that are not properly eliminating in consolidation. Uh, The second material weakness is the preparation process itself that the Department of Treasury in coordination with Office of Management and Budget use. And the issues that are within this preparation material weakness deal with that the statements do not currently balance. And that goes back primarily to the first deficiency I was talking about with all the transactions not eliminating between federal entities. Well, the result of that is then the statements themselves do not properly balance. And so Treasury has to record a plug in order to get everything to work out. And then in addition to that, as far as ensuring that the financial statements are in accordance with generally accepted accounting principles, that is also one of the issues. And then the third material weakness relates to two statements that are prepared only at the consolidated level. And these statements show the um, reconciliation between the budget deficit and changes in cash as well as the reconciling items between net cost and the budget deficit. And we have found that Treasury's process for preparing these two financial statements is not effective as far as identifying all the reconciling items that should be included, as well as the consistency with the underlying agency level information. And you mentioned, though, in this latest report, the latest update on all of this, that the Treasury has made progress in a number of other deficiencies that had been longstanding. 
we have found significant progress by the Department of Treasury and the Office of Management and Budget, specifically over the last few years. I mean, when you think back to that, we've been auditing the financial statements since fiscal year 1997, we've made over 260 recommendations throughout our audit related to the processes for preparing the consolidated financial statements. And so over these years, Treasury and the Office of Management and Budget, as well as the agencies that are, you know, providing the amounts for Treasury to consolidate have made significant improvements in their financial reporting. And we continue to see this past year as it relates to the Department of Treasury and the efforts that they're undertaking. We were able to close two recommendations. So there's only currently 10 recommendations now open from prior years. Plus, we made five new recommendations that we just issued. But of those 10, even though those remain open, we found that Treasury made significant progress in implementing their corrective actions related to those prior year recommendations. We're speaking with Don Simpson, Director of Financial Management and Assurance Issues at the Government Accountability Office. And the report also said there were four new deficiencies that popped up this year. Just briefly describe what those are, and, and I guess your recommendations are to fix those. Treasury has many procedures and processes for preparing the consolidated financial statements. And so we found that while Treasury had policies and procedures in these specific areas for these four new deficiencies relate to, we found that their procedures were not sufficient. And so they could make improvements in these areas. And these areas related to the accounting and reporting for significant unusual transactions that could occur. And so an example of that would be if like new legislation was introduced during the year. The second one related to the identification and analysis of all uncorrected misstatements that could be included in the consolidated financial statements. The third one related to properly disclosing the significant accounting policies that are used to prepare the statements. And then the fourth one related to better documenting disclosure decisions that Treasury made, both as far as disclosures that were made, as well as decisions on disclosures to not make. And so while Treasury has procedures in all these areas, we found that those procedures needed to be improved. All right. And let me just ask you a kind of philosophical question. If someone were to be, say, a corporate tax accounting or an accounting type of person or an auditor, you know, that looks at corporate accounting and makes sure that it's all kosher, if such an expert were to join Treasury and look at the way the federal government goes about accounting for itself and creating balance sheets and consolidated statements, would it look to that person like they were on Mars? Or is there some correspondence between the way the government accounts for itself and it requires private publicly held industry or all industry for that matter to account for itself? So there would be a lot of similarities because you are consolidating information per accounting standards to develop financial statements, you know, and, and the same financial statements that the federal government has, you know, when you think of the balance sheet, I mean, that's consistent across, you know, all entities, whether you're government or not. And so there are certain aspects that are very similar. The challenge is with the federal government, there's over 160 reporting entities that are part of the federal government that then submit data for this consolidation process. And just the complexities and quantity of data that is then coming into the Department of Treasury 
to then, you know, consolidate the information, ensure its consistency, and then do what is needed, you know, at the consolidated level, such as eliminating the transactions between federal entities that I was mentioning earlier. It's a very challenging aspect given the size and complexity of the U.S. government. And GAO has been finding these deficiencies and Treasury has been, sounds like, trying to nail them down and they generally agree with them. Do you have the sense that at some point GAO will be able to offer an opinion on what it sees as sound financial statements? Well, that is the goal. And like I said, we have seen a significant amount of progress in being able to um, see improvements in federal financial management over the years. When you think back to, you know, those first audits at the agency level that were done in 1996, you know, for the fiscal year 1996 financial statements, I mean, six of the 24 Chief Financial Officers Act agencies, only six were able to get clean opinions on their financial statements. And this past year, we were at you know, you know, 21 to 22 these last few years of agencies that are able to um, to get a clean opinion. So there's been a, a huge amount of progress in the audit of, you know, the individual agency financial statements. And we are continuing to see a lot of progress, as we were just talking about, at the consolidated level. And so, yes, that commitment by the Department of Treasury and the Office of Management and Budget, as well as the agencies, that strong commitment that we've really been seeing here these last few years, that continued commitment by them, then hopefully we will get to the goal of audited, clean, consolidated financial statements. All right. Well, we'll pop some champagne on the day that happens. Don Simpson is Director of Financial Management and Assurance Issues at the GAO. As always, thanks so much. Right. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. And we'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, 
the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation. But it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required and that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of 
deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those you know, sort of blue sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from those stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So, so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. 
And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.